as we come this morning out of that and to this table, I wanted to talk a little bit today in brief about what does it mean or how really is it that we experience that kind of joy? As it, how is it that we experience that kind of peace that comes from an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ? For many of us, many of you are regular attenders. You are good church-going folk. Uh, You know your doctrine. You know your theology. But yet there is not anything in you that sparks in you this sense of that intimacy with God. It's a foreign concept to you. You so desperately want it, and we use terms like, well, I've got it here, but it's 18 inches away from reality. You see, God never designed His Word and all the beauty of His doctrines to be stuck in our heads. It was to come into our hearts and absolutely radically transform us, and He uses language within the Scriptures that, especially in the day and age for which it was written, when it was written, was radical language. We look at it and we think, oh, it was cool, but it's radical language. When you think of Jesus Christ saying to his disciples when the little kids came up and grabbed him on his knee and were hanging out with him, and the disciples wanted to come up to the children and scoot them away, he said, you have to become like one of these in order to inherit the kingdom of God. And some say, oh, you have to become simple-minded and a childlike. But what he was saying was, you have to understand yourselves to be just like these children who have absolutely no place in society. They have absolutely no value until they come to a bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah, until they are of some value and worth. You have to be like them. You have to look at yourselves of having no value, no worth, and finding all of your value and worth in me. And then you get it. And the disciples were just stunned. He said, you have to be like this adulterous woman. You have to be like this blind beggar. You have to be like this. You have to be a person who realizes that you absolutely have nothing and that anything you have is given to you by God. That he's the one who absolutely radically overwhelms your life with meaning and with love and extravagance of love. We talked about that a little bit last week of the pictures of extravagant love from God. Well, Paul is talking about that in the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, he's, he's talking about the life in Christ and what does it mean and all of that. And then all of a sudden in chapter 8, he introduces language uh, that's radical. He introduces language of an orphan and an heir. That He introduces adoption language that says, now, not only is this a legal transition, uh, transition and a transaction that takes place, but there is something more than that. It's not just that you are justified meaning that your sins are paid for and that your slate is written off and that it's all paid in full. Not only is there that legal standing now before God when you can say, I have no more debt. It's all been paid for. And by the way, you know that, right? You don't owe God any payment for your sins. That confession that we did just a second ago, it wasn't as extra payment It was recognizing the full, one-time, complete payment of your debts by God. Now, some of you are still trying to pay God off. You're still trying to say to him, See, God, I'm trying. I'm really doing. I'm doing. I'm doing. I'm doing. Would you accept me? And what you need to hear is this whole doctrine of justification by faith alone, if I through grace alone and Christ alone, that it's paid for, all taken care of by Christ. That's good news, by the way, folks. And that every now and then could get an amen uh, in other kinds of congregations. But uh, again, I'll tell you, I'll take a good Presbyterian amen, which is more or less a hmm. I, I, that's, but 
The next thing that we're going to talk about, I mean, it should be, I look at some of my debt that we have, and I'd sure love for the bank, you know, I, I think it's U.S. Bank that owns my note. People go, oh, you own your house? I love when you have to fill that out on a tax form. It's like, heck no, I don't own my house, but I pay a lot for it. And I wish that the bank would just go, Bill, we've taken care of that for you. Just thought we would pay that off for you. That'd be a nice day, wouldn't it? Yeah. But you see, God, uh, we... Yeah, we got a few amens on that. I know what generates some emotion from you guys. Who cares about our eternal debt, but if I can get rid of my mortgage, woohoo! As you realize that your eternal debt is a whole lot more substantial, and it will carry with it a whole lot more as far as destructive issues than your mortgage debt. And God has said to you, because of my son's work, it's painful. You don't owe me anything else. That's a good thing. But now, Paul introduces more language. And he says, not only are you legally free from the the bondage of your debt, and you are in equal standing now with God in that way of you owe him nothing in that regard as far as a debt to pay. But the judge went further. He said, not only do you not pay anything else, I'm adopting you as my son. I'm making you legally my daughter. And you get everything that I have. All of the glories of heaven, all of the inheritance of eternity, it's yours now. Now imagine what that should do inside your hearts. That you go, wow, not only have I been, everything been paid off for me. That Bill Gates stepped in, that Warren Buffett stepped in and said, McCutcheon, I'm going to take care of your debt for you. But he also said, hey, by the way, McCutcheon, you're going to be my heir. And you get everything that I have. Would that be a good day? I'd I'd kind of be excited. (laughs) And I'd tell an awful lot of people about it. And then I would go ahead and I'd probably begin to change my lifestyle in such a way as to live in the reality that I was Warren Buffett's heir. That, that I would be hopefully incredibly philanthropist in what I have and, and give it away and share it and enjoy it in my own life and tell other people about how awesome my dad was. What kind of man he was who would love a wreck like me and give me these things. That is the response that a child of God should have. But it has to start at a point of you saying, you have nothing in the equation but debt. And we come in, and this is where Paul picks it up. So if you have your Bibles, flip over to Romans chapter 8 and look at verses 12 through 17. This is God's Word. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of it. Amen. And so here we come, and I'm just going to highlight a couple of things and really speak of this idea of adoption. 
I was raised in a family, and I've mentioned to you before, by a woman who was adopted by a family on Park Avenue in New York City with all the wealth, all the power that you could imagine. But she couldn't bear their name. She couldn't call her grandparents grandmom and granddaddy because she wasn't blood. She had to sit at a different table during meals because she wasn't really part of the family. She got zero inheritance from the family. And eventually she and my grandmother were kicked out of the home and had to go figure it out on their own. And so when my mother came to this concept and this truth of adoption, it resonated deeply with her but in an incredibly negative way. What Paul is trying to say is that adoption is the most glorious and beautiful thing because what happens in this transaction of adoption is that it says that the Spirit of God enters in and He comes and He takes up residence in us. And in that, what we begin to see in our lives is that we are in a battle now and that the motivation for that battle changes that it says first in here that we have to kill sin or be killed by sin, verse 12. So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, verse 13 now. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now he's saying there's this battle that is going on and that we're called to live a righteous life and that we're called to live a life where we are killing sin in our lives, that we are battling against those things and we're wanting to live for God and live by His Spirit. And the question then has to become, what's our motivation? How do we do that? And in the very next thing he says, you see, the motivation for you to live a life of righteousness, a motivation for you to live a life that's pleasing and worthy of your high calling in Christ is the fact of the superior nature of God's love for you over the benefits of sin. And for many of you, you wrestle with how to live a righteous life. Many of you wrestle with sin in your life and you battle it and you battle it and your arms are, you've got scars and you're fatigued and you're worn out and you're active. But the problem is you're fighting a a futile battle because your motivations are wrong. Your power source is wrong. Because you see, what Paul is saying here is the motivation and the power to live a righteous life is for you to recognize this fact. You are loved by God as a son or daughter. And his love is so wonderful and so overwhelming that it trumps any of the fake affections that are promised to you in the sin that you're offered. Because that's how sin gets us. Satan is no dummy. He doesn't say, go out and eat broccoli because it's an abomination to God. I'd be able to withhold from that sin. Some of you are going, Bill, broccoli's wonderful. I don't, I, I'm not banging on broccoli, but it, it works for me. He's saying, God's saying, be pure in your thoughts. And Satan says, I'm going to put beautiful people in front of you. He's saying, be incredibly generous. God is saying, be generous with what you have. And Satan's going to put things in front of me that just challenge me not to be generous in a world, in a culture that says, get all you can while you can. The one who ends the race with the most toys wins. Now the battle begins and is hard. And so how do we begin to die to those things that we should die to? Well, it's not simply saying white fisting it and going, okay, God, white knuckle it, and I'm just going to do it, and I'm going to pull my bootstraps up. What Paul is saying is the best motivator and the incredible power that you have is this fact. Look at your Father's love for you and let that overwhelm you. Whatever sin it is that you are wrestling with, and each of you are, by the way, 
And if you say you're not, then let me help you. Cliff note, you're struggling with pride. Self-sufficiency. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, what Paul is saying here, instead of just looking at it and saying, it's no good, I shouldn't do it, I shouldn't do it, maybe turn your gaze over to a cross and look at that cross and focus so much on that cross and realize what happened to that cross. Not only were your sins forgiven, but you became a son or daughter of the king. And that God loves you more than you ever could have imagined. He loves you more than you could have dreamed in your wildest dream. And he wants to overwhelm you with that love. And it's this picture of the expulsive nature of the love of God in Christ to us. What that means is this. If you focus on that, if you focus on the love of God in Christ for you, what happens is it sort of an, it, it expels other things from your life. So instead of, and I've, we've talked about this before, I used to be really concerned about my yard, and I would work in the yard, and Lisa would joke with me and say, that's my mistress. I would go out and work in the yard, and I was really upset when there was crabgrass and dandelions, and I was focused on all of that stuff, and I finally talked to somebody who had a really great yard. He said, Bill, your focus is wrong. He said, you're focusing on how to get rid of bad things when you really should be focusing on how to get the good things to grow, and then if you really get the southern fescue to really grow, it will choke out the bad stuff the expulsive power of good grass in your yard. It wasn't good. That one didn't work. (laughs) So I need to look at my notes more. But it's that way in your life. Instead of focusing on, I've got to get rid of this anger. I've got to get rid of this pornography. I've got to get rid of, of this uh, stuff in my life. Maybe it's, I'm going to focus and look at the beauty of how God has overwhelmed me in Christ and let that begin to move other things out that there's just no room left for that other stuff because I'm so filled with his goodness and who I am in him. You see, that's what Paul was saying here. The Spirit's leading proves that you are a son or daughter of God, that what you see in your life is it becomes affection over fear. Most of you try to live a Christian life because of the fear that's behind you. You're afraid God's going to get you. Hell's back there. And most preachers like to preach about those things because it can motivate you. Now, I can motivate you to do some things through fear and guilt. I can get you to do that. But I doubt that most people in a communist country really say that they're excited about communism. As one Vietnamese leader once said, he was asked, do you like communism? He said, no, but they have the guns. Sometimes that's how you feel towards God. He's got the guns, so I better follow suit. I'd rather you think this way. Your motivation shouldn't be out of fear, but it should be out of affection. That you could look and you are motivated by the joy that's set before you. That you're motivated by the beauty of what God has done for you. And in so doing that, you run towards it. And you run towards that kind of God. And you move closer to Him and you say, God, I want to honor you. How do I do that? God, I want to honor you. And what you see in that is this sort of circular argument. That if you desire that and you want that, then you're really testifying to the fact that you have the Spirit of God in you. And the Spirit of God in you gives you the power to overcome the sins that are in your life. Do you believe that? How many of you are sick and tired of struggling with the same thing? I am. I get into, Lisa and I get into it every now and then, and I look and I go, it, McCutcheon, Bill McCutcheon, this is the same thing you've wrestled with for 21 years with her. What's wrong with you? Well, I find myself getting frustrated. I find myself doing something, and I'm so sick and tired of doing the same thing. 
But you see, my problem is that I go back to the same sources that haven't worked before. Instead of maybe looking and going, God, fill me in a different way. I'm going to stare at your cross until I'm changed. I'm going to consider all of what's happened to me in that transaction until my behavior changes. And I'm going to do it and do it and do it again until I'm changed. Motivation doesn't come from behind you. It really is what's set out in front of you and is working in you. Parents, you know this. You can get behavioral modification out of your children through fear, can't you? Yes? I can make it really bad on my sons, and I can get them to do what I want them to do. But have I touched their hearts? Not at all. Some of you in your marriages, what you desperately want to see is not behavioral modification in your spouse, but you want to see heart transformation. You want to see the motivation changed. Ladies, would you be excited if your husbands began to bring you flowers regularly to your house? Any ladies be excited about that? Yeah, that'd be nice. But what if your husband, all of a sudden, his, behavioral modif- his you know, behavior was modified, and he brought you those things, and then on one Sunday afternoon when you had plans to go and do something, he came in and he said, Oh, sweetheart, I forgot to mention to you, I'm going to go play golf with the fellows this afternoon, and I'm going to have to miss our date this afternoon and everything that we had planned. I hope that's okay. And you go, sweetie, we had that planned for a long time. He goes, wait a second. I've brought you flowers every day for a month. What did he just say about his motivation for bringing you flowers? It was just behavior modification. His heart hadn't changed. He was incredibly selfish still. What we're looking for in our lives is a heart change. And a heart change begins by not only recognizing the debt that you've been paid, but that the relationship that's been changed. Because guess what? Just knowing good doctrine does not make you a son or daughter. Satan has really good doctrine. What makes you a son or a daughter is the Spirit of God taking up residence in your life and changing you. It happens naturally within our lives. And so my hope is that what we begin to experience in our lives is the power of that adoption, which says in deep words, Jesus used Aramaic here. He went, Abba, Father. He went deep. He says, you cry out. These cries from deep down within of a child crying to his father, you cry out, Dad! Dad! That resonates so deeply with me. been 21 years since I've been able to say that. I would so love to be able to say those words to my dad again. If he walked in, I promise you, I would not even notice you. I would be a fool to go and to hug my dad's neck. That's the emotion that God is trying to elicit within you, that when you see him, you go, Dad! And he looks at you and he goes, son, daughter, I love you. And there's this embrace that absolutely overwhelms you and the world becomes secondary to you. 
And you just go, I'm going to hang out with you for a while, and I'm going to live with you, and I'm going to be with you. That's the power of adoption. That's the power of the God of the universe looking down into the world and saying to you, you're mine. I'm your father, and I will defend you as a father would defend their child. I am your father, and I've given you everything that I have. I have not withheld one good thing from you. I am your father, and you can be safe with me. No matter what comes your way, you can be safe with me. Now, live with me. Live in light of that reality. Do you think that would change you? If you began to really believe that? It would. And I thought a good way to maybe get around that a little bit today was, you see, I come from a family, like I said, where adoption wasn't a really positive thing. And my mom has had to work her entire life to wrestle away the demons of a bad adoption. But what we're going to see now is the beauty of a good adoption, of a little boy who desperately needs parents and some parents who desperately need a little son. And so watch with me what God is doing in this family's life. Days will come when you don't have the strength worth anything Wondering if you ever could be loved And if they truly saw your heart they'd see too much um, There's a little boy His name is Michael and he's nine months old Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah, he is so cute I can't even tell you
hear me? That still gives me tears. Thank you, Bill, for letting us share uh, our testimony. This will, this will be real quick, but um, we, we wanted to thank everybody in this congregation for your support. It is just a tremendous blessing, the love you poured out, poured out on our family. And we wanted to give you just a quick update. Michael has cleared all the legal hurdles, and he's officially our child. And we're just going through some paperwork with the embassy. And thank you. And so... We're going to be traveling in the next week or two to pick him up, and he'll be part of our congregation. Now, I wanted to just say a couple of things. Um, the four-and-a-half journey, year journey that it's taken us to adopt a child ha- is extremely unusual. So if you're sitting here and thinking that's a huge deterrent, please understand that's an unusual process. But for us, it's very clear that that four-and-a-half-year period was very needed. Um, my heart needed to change. Our family needed to change. And we're now prepared to bring this child home. Um, Interestingly, oh, here go, go my notes, but, um, you know, this adoption process has really deepened our faith, and it really has given us a passion for adoption. But what's really cool to me is that we were sitting in a congregation just like you about five years ago, and somebody was talking about adoption. And believe it or not, God kind of pricked my heart, and it led us on a journey to ultimately adopt. And so I wouldn't be surprised if today there's somebody sitting here um, just like us, and, and maybe he's putting a call on your life to do very much the same thing. And if you're thinking, uh, couldn't be me, let me tell you, a boy that grew up in Savannah, Georgia, seersucker, bow ties, let me just tell you, I lived a life of comfort and, and pleasure and about myself. And, and let me just tell you, he changed my heart and led me to a point to do this. Um, guys, there are millions of, I mean, there are thousands of kids, real millions too, that need homes around the world. And um, I just ask that you, you think about that. Um, what's cool, too, is that there are many families in this congregation that are adopting uh, domestically in Russia, Africa, China. And it's cool that Hilton Head Press is becoming an adoptive church. It really is a reflection of God's work. Now, there, there are some of you sitting in here that, you know, it's just physically not possible. It's not right. But what you can do is pray and and support, maybe even family financially, because it is a daunting um, task. 
I want to read a quick verse and then let Leslie say a, a word in closing. But James one twenty seven says, Pure and genuine religion in sight of God the Father means caring for the orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Um, we just want to thank everybody again for your love and support. Um, it has been a long journey, and there's full of joy and full of love, but also full of many trials and um, many periods of waiting and then hurry up and doing appointments and visiting people and running to Charleston for this and that and then waiting again. Um, and we couldn't have done it without all the prayers and the hugs and the support and just the affirmation that we've gotten for um, from our body of Christ here, and we just want to thank you all. And we realize that um, every family is not called to bring a child into their home and to adopt, um, but that's what God had for us several years ago. We had two healthy little girls, and God just convinced us our family was not complete, and um, he had plans for us. And um, just like um, Pastor Bill said, um, you know, our motivation is out of love, and God has just really changed our lives. And we know that this is not the end of our journey just by getting Michael home. Um, but we know that um, orphan care is a calling on our lives um, forever now. And um, we just want to encourage everybody to really just pray what God has for you and your family and see how um, God could use you and, and carry for the orphans of this world. There are many, and there are many ways to be involved. And we'll just pray for each of you. If you have any questions, there are so many families in our church that are involved in so many different ways with orphan care and orphan ministry. And we just encourage you to reach out to those people. Um, we're all so excited about it, and we're always happy to share. Thank you. Did you notice anything on their faces? Just joy. And as much joy as there is from earthly parents to a child, I want you to translate this table today as your heavenly Father's smile towards you. That he's looking at you and going, I absolutely love you. You are my joy in life. And he said this amazing thing. My joy will not be complete until all my children are home. He has tied his eternal joy to yours. That's incredible that God has done that. And he loves you. And so we want to continue to pray and celebrate uh, with uh, the Alberts. Pray and celebrate with, where are the white shirts? Where y'all, Bill, are y'all around? They're in children's church, but they're in the process uh, of adopting. The Rhines have a beautiful little girl that they've adopted. Um, Greg and Chris, where are y'all? There's Greg in the back. You'll notice in the bulletin that Greg and Christine are involved in a ministry for adopted children. They have 25 children from the state of Texas and the state of South Carolina who are looking for homes. And they'll help you facilitate it. And unlike Garrett and Leslie's uh, uh, process, which was 40 grand. Greg, yours costs zero, zero. And so money's not an inhibitor there, but there's just ways to be involved, uh, ways to love and to do that. And I hope that we're a church that does embrace that well, as we already are doing. But today I want you to hear this. Your Father in heaven loves you. And maybe today's the day that it breaks through, that it breaks through from a theological framework to a truth of taking a seat in your heart. And I pray that you would know that and see that. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come up, and I'm going to pray for us. 
and we're going to sing about beholding this lamb and that we come to this table. And I want you to experience this today in this way. Jonathan Edwards, who is a wonderful pastor and theologian in America, he wrote about Luke 15 and the, the difference, the essential difference between the older son and the younger son. And he said the essential difference between the older son and the younger son was that the younger son experienced the kiss of the father. Would this table today be that affection and kiss of your heavenly father towards you? And would it melt you? Father, we thank you. We pray uh, for, for your spirit to overwhelm us and that we would look up maybe for the first time for some and cry out, Abba, Father. That we would look and see you in a whole new light today and be transformed by it. We pray now that as we sing, as we come to this table, as we, as we just celebrate you, that we'd see you celebrating us. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.